Live streaming is on. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, we're live. Um, all right. We're live with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, I actually I had somebody else from uh, who was it? It was Jeremy Jalula. I had on who uh, was at DefCon. He was at the Monero Village. This I guess two weeks ago now, um, and we had a nice interview. Uh, but it kind of led to discussions about uh, the constitutionality or uh, what what the case law currently says about um, cryptocurrency and whether or not it is free speech. Often hear people calling Bitcoin Bitcoin uh, kind of like free speech money. Uh, we know there there's case law out there uh, about money itself. Uh, being free speech, uh, about code being free speech. Uh, but obviously things are a lot more complicated than that. So uh, Jeremy was nice enough to introduce me to these other people from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, Aaron and Rainey. I forgot the last names. I know you just told me. Uh, you guys, if you guys could give a quick, each give a quick intro of yourselves and what you guys do at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I guess we could also talk about, once again, what the EFF is in general before we get into uh, the weeds with this uh, constitutional law here. So if you want to, Aaron, you want to kick it off or Rainey? Who, go for it. Either one. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> um, so I'm Aaron Mackey, and I'm a staff attorney here at EFF. And I work primarily on uh, free speech, government transparency, and government surveillance. Awesome. Um and uh, my name is Rainey Reitman. I'm the Chief Program Officer at EFF. I have spent almost a decade here, and so I've kind of touched on every issue that EFF has worked on over time. Um, and I've been doing a lot of uh, EFF's thinking around blockchain, along with Aaron, for the last uh, several years. So I'm super excited to talk to you, Doug, and talk to your community about it these uh, somewhat complicated and nuanced issues uh, today. Awesome. Um, yeah, so let's let's do like a recap of what the EFF is again. So we, we talked about it a little bit on the last show, but if you guys want to just kind of give a quick summary of what the EFF is, how long you've been around, what you guys stand for, what you guys are actively trying to accomplish. Do you want to take that first? I'll start. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, EFF was founded back in 1990 as an organization that could fearlessly defend the rights of technology users as uh, new technology started to challenge existing laws. So EFF has really been at the forefront of fighting for free expression, privacy, and innovation uh, uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, in order to ensure that users can use the technology the way they want to. Um, we have a very holistic approach to change. So we engage through the court systems. Uh, Aaron is an attorney. He's one of the, I think, 19 attorneys we have on staff now. We engage in impact litigation through the courts. Uh, we also, um, as uh, you were just at DEF CON, we also take on clients who maybe are concerned about CFAA violation issues as they engage in security research. Um, in addition to our litigation work, we do uh, a lot of advocacy and activism that includes both going and trying to lobby in Sacramento and in Congress, and to a certain extent uh, around the world. 
and also a lot of uh, public education campaigns around digital rights issues. And then we build really cool technology projects. All of our projects are open source and free to the public. And we work to, um, to ensure that we have more private experiences online through them. We have and more secure experiences. So we have CertBot and uh, Privacy Badger and other so open source tools. Um, you already had Jeremy on your show, so I won't go into some of the things he already discussed, but that's kind of our three-pronged approach to trying to defend user rights, technology, activism, and litigation. Very cool. And, and I think, oh, go ahead. I think one uh, historical uh, case that EFF was involved in that I think is sort of central and helpful to, to our conversation today was in, in the 90s, um, EFF represented uh, then a, a PhD student who wanted to publish a cryptographic protocol um, that would enable like his own version of a secure messaging system. And what he ran up against were these export control regulations and laws that basically prohibited him from publishing and disclosing that information um, sort of absent uh, a license by the government. You had to sort of seek pre-approval um, before publishing this because it was considered basically the equivalent of like a, a weapon. Right, um, it was and, like arms dealing overseas, right. was publishing a paper. Right, so it was like a, not just like a federal crime, but like a weapons grade crime to publish something that would enable secure messaging. So we brought this case on his behalf and in the district court, we got a, a really great ruling um, that for the first time recognized that the publication of code itself was an expressive activity and that it was protected by the First Amendment and that the regulations and the statute that prohibited it were subject to First Amendment scrutiny. And the Ninth Circuit largely agreed with that. There's some on the back end, uh, the, the government sort of changed its regulations and there was like an ongoing question of whether they satisfied the First Amendment, but we do have this ruling um, and then other courts have sort of affirmed that ruling and saying in other contexts where the sort of publication of code that's sort of um, part and parcel of an expressive activity is protected by the First Amendment and, and provides, you know, some limitations on government regulation of the publication and distribution of that code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's why I wanted to have you guys on. Um, so, yeah, when I was interviewing Jeremy, I was like, what is, you know, the the biggest thing the EF has done in terms of accomplishments. And obviously he mentioned, he mentioned that I was like, oh yeah. So, I mean, I, I've heard about the case, obviously. Uh, that's something that's often discussed about in, in, the uh, in, uh, crypt circles, right. That the fact that this, like the cypherpunk kind of won back at that time, right. It was like a, the first big win. Uh, but I didn't realize the EFF was behind it. I guess I didn't really know what the EFF was. So I think this is why this is a really important show. Why I wanted to have you guys on, uh, to reiterate this, um, and to get in the weeds now with this a little bit, because obviously, all right, so that, that case happened, what year was that? That was in the, that was in the 90, early nineties. What was it? 1996. And then 1996. And, uh, obviously it's, it's, it's you know, it, it, it didn't go to the Supreme court level, right? That was, that was what court was it? It was, um, the ninth circuit, which is the intermediate federal court. Um, so it was. It started in a district court, a federal district court, and then the Ninth Circuit largely upheld uh, the district court's decision. Right. So I guess what I'm getting at. So I guess the the, the one liner that comes from that is code. You know, code is speech, right? But that's that's a a, a very 
simple way of saying things, and it, it's really not that simple, right? So, so when we say code is speech, what what is meant by that? I guess what is meant by that from that case, and right. given where we currently at today, given the case law that has happened since then, uh, and if any legislation has happened since then that may affect it, what yeah. what is where is code at in terms of being speech? Right. So, so what the case, starting with the first question, what the case meant by sort of code is speech is it was, it, it talks, it walks through how the actual written code itself, and there was an accompanying, accompanying white paper that sort of talked about the whole process, that it was expressive, right? That, that the code was a language, just like any other language, it had expressive elements. Um, and the, the act of wanting to distribute it, to publish it, um, and to give it to the public is an expressive element as well. So it and very much mirrors sort of digital, pre-digital analogs in how people would say, compile something like a novel um, and then, or a news story and then disseminate it, right? And so we think of those things as traditionally being sort of protected First Amendment activities. And this court largely put co the code writing and the distribution of the code on the same foot. Um, and then as to your second question, it has been uh, adopted and, and discussed in other cases. So the appellate court, the federal appellate court in, that oversees sort of New York um, has also upheld it in a, in a decision, um, the Corley decision, where it talks about these same ideas and sort of um, just sort of adds a plus one to this idea that, that the code is speech. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is something, I mean, you're talking about legislation. So the, you know, we've kind of seen pieces of legislation bandied about, sometimes introduced and sometimes just discussed around trying to uh, basically insert backdoors into uh, different encrypted messaging and encrypted communication tools. Um, and we've also seen uh, some early regulation around blockchain technology being suggested. Um, EFF has uh, submitted comments on the very first version of New York's uh, version of their bit license, which would have uh, had serious uh, First Amendment consequences in our opinion, um, before they then made some substantial edits to it later. Uh, uh, basically arguing again that um, the code of cryptocurrencies uh, was also expressive, that it was also expressing ideas through code. Um, we recently made very similar uh, arguments when we wrote a letter. Um, actually, we submitted formal comments to the UK Treasury Department. So the UK Treasury Department is updating their anti-money laundering uh, uh, regulations, and they asked for public comments. And one of the questions they asked was, should we be looking into banning uh, the publication of open source code as part of these regulations? And so we submitted comments basically saying, we think that would be a terrible idea and pointing not only to the many legal reasons that that would be problematic, but also, also the ethical reasons. So, you know, uh, free software today is part of so much of our society, right? Free software is, uh, behind tons of websites and behind uh, many phone operating systems. It's something that governments are relying on. It's uh, putting in place regulations on the ban of the software to have massive ramifications. And how would you even do that if you ban one type of publication and then somebody 
then you know tweaks it a little bit and makes their own version of it it just turns into this mire of confusing uh, regulation that we felt just literally didn't belong in updating these anti-money laundering laws so we kind of submitted those comments and we've been pretty worried that there's this uh, slowly growing backlash to uh, cryptocurrencies that I think um, have been really uh, starting to speed up with the, um, you know, with Libra hitting the news and with Congress starting to pay attention to cryptocurrency in a new way uh, as they look at Facebook jumping into the space. And so they've been reaching out to us and we've been, um, very concerned that among the very bad ideas that they could be considering are actually bans on uh, publication of code because they don't have another way to say don't make a cryptocurrency. So they say don't publish a cryptocurrency. And it's uh, something that we're deeply concerned about and have said from the beginning that that would be uh, something that we would oppose and something that we think would raise really big constitutional questions. Anyway you want to add anything to that. Right. And I think that's right. And, and so it's a, you know, our view is that this is a very strong protection. Um, but I think what happens when, when we sort of talk about these jumps and we can probably unpack this a little bit is, is the idea of like, there's the, there's the point in which you write something that's expressive and then you give it to the world. And, and that's the moment that we're talking about where sort of the courts have really sort of, there's the most support for the idea that banning it or placing liability on the fact that you published it or distributed it would be um, you know, subject to the First Amendment and the scrutiny there and would perhaps be unconstitutional depending on sort of the specifics. But I think what, what I think that the discourse has come to, and, and you can talk about this as well, is like, uh, I think there's this belief that because the publication and the expressive elements themselves are First Amendment, protected when you distribute something that sort of everything downstream continues to carry with it so that when you move from actually the code being distributed to like setting up a distributed you know ledger and actually beginning to exchange things of value that all of that is still sort of first amendment activity and, and like we can get to like the first amendment financial questions but i think it would be a mistake to jump and say, well, because that initial publication of the expressive elements of speech is protected by the First Amendment, everything downstream is. That's not really how the First Amendment works, and there definitely hasn't been sort of a built-out support for that in, in courts by saying that. Because if that were the case, then you would see a lot of a lot more sort of First Amendment questions in sort of our traditional financial system and network, um, and other sort of functional things that code permits. Um, like the regulation of vehicles or something like that. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's again, like we are firm believers in it and we advocate strongly for uh, allowing people to publish code and to distribute it and to innovate and to share what they have with the world. Um, but when it's actually made into a thing um, that becomes functional, uh, it does, you know, the, the First Amendment questions change and, and the protections also also change. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to under. Yeah, I'm sorry to, if you want to jump in, but what I'm trying to understand more is is this that you're starting to touch upon. So, you know, like we said, speech is a, is a very general argument to make. Yeah. Obviously, uh, that's that's really not the case, right? There's once you start to get to get deeper to it. Yeah. It's about it's about what code 
or this what we're calling the speech actually does right right and then whether or not it's actually uh doing things like allowing people to express themselves or it's uh somehow protecting minority viewpoints and allowing people to be more expressive that way right like or allowing people to uh politically dissent right so all those things right it's, do you want to get into that a little bit like what is what is the test that's that you think should or will be used yeah uh, well I, mean, I think there's a there's a couple of things there so so like just to take take a step back and sort of go into like a, a like we're not talking about cryptocurrencies we're just talking about First Amendment law generally, there's this dichotomy between sort of expressive and functional, or sometimes they're called the speech conduct rule. And there are like mixed questions sometimes, like speech can be conduct, right? And the biggest example that the Supreme Court has affirmed is like burning a flag or burning your draft card, right? That's conduct. You're actually doing something in the physical world, but it has an overriding expressive element. But generally speaking, like we do a lot of things that are expressive that then are functional or have like real world conduct. So that sort of maps to this idea of like a functional, um, you know, code when it's executed and it becomes functional, like it really sort of, you know, not to be like the lawyer, but it, it does really depend on sort of what that code enables and whether it's like executing sort of traditional functions that would be considered sort of more, would look more like conduct in, in sort of a non-digital analog. Um, or if it's actually looking like an expressive function. So a, a lot of stuff, I mean, there are lots of laws and regulations that are about um, conduct related to like finance. And um, and then Rainey was mentioning like there's this whole other thing about like this overlay of commercial speech and regulation of giving speech for political purposes or other sort of expressive purposes as well. Um, but I think, you know, that's just sort of kind of a top line of like the nested issues that are at play. And so it's always sort of very specific to, to like particular things. If, if I can add one maybe concrete specific thing that we've been thinking a lot about is um, to what extent should someone who publishes their ideas, their code in the world be held liable for people who later use it in ways that they didn't intend, maybe even use it for illegal purposes, right? Um, we were exploring this issue recently. Um, earlier this year, the SEC had a, a settlement that they reached. It was like a cease and desist order, and then they reached a settlement with a, a decentralized exchange called EtherDelta. And um, what's always a little tricky about a, a situation like that is um, we, like EFF, we don't find out about it until the SEC has already reached their agreement with EtherDelta, right? So uh, this wasn't something we ever had an opportunity to reach out to them until they had already kind of hit their agreement and made their decision about, you know, the fine that they were going to pay and things like that, which water under the bridge. But um, we were really concerned about some of the language that the SEC published around their agreement with EtherDelta. Um, uh, including things that we thought alluded to a concern around whether or not EtherDelta was allowed to publish the code describing a decentralized exchange. or uh, And then there was some uh, additional comments made by the SEC uh, indicating that, uh, that the publishers of EtherDelta should have known that their uh, service was going to be used for illegal purposes. 
And this is something that, I mean, I'm sure Aaron can speak more broadly to this, that the idea that someone who publishes a neutral tool that is later used in ways that they weren't expecting, that it wasn't necessarily designed for, uh, and potentially for ways that could have violated the law, the idea that someone publishing a neutral tool could be held liable for that is something that raises a lot of red flags for us. Yeah, and so um, sort, of, sort of get back maybe at an example that might be apt is, is sort of like, if you publish a series of uh, instructions or let's say even a recipe for making something or like uh, directions on how to build something, um, that publication of that idea of like what to do is protected by the First Amendment. But at the end of the day, right, like you, you've baked your, your cake or you've assembled your dresser, um, that is something that's concrete in the real world that's functional, right? And so like that in and of itself uh, is not protected by the First Amendment. But let's say you provide instructions for how to make something um, and then it's taken into the real world and used in a way that creates something that's illegal. Like the First Amendment also then protects your publication of that and, and several cases have held that you shouldn't be liable um, if someone sort of does something downstream unless you actually like publish detailed instructions and, and, and held their hand the whole way to committing the illegal act. And so that's what we talk about when we talk about sort of publication liability is like if you publish something that's just sort of general and then someone takes that general thing and uses it for uh, for ill, like you should not be liable unless you specifically actually intended that that would result and you gave really specific instructions on how to do the illegal thing, which doesn't happen in a lot of these cases, particularly like Ether Delta, it was just open source software that people could build upon and was neutral and people could use. So Yeah, and I'm not sure, well, I'm not sure we know all the details of the Ether Delta case, but uh, it's possible that that was the situation. The other thing I would say is, and I think we're both kind of touching on this, is like this area of law is like, uh, got some really good early cases that EFF helped to carve out that we think get it right when it comes to the First Amendment and the Constitution and we're facing a whole series of new technologies and regulators kind of stepping into this space in a way that I am super worried about, right? Like, I'll be completely honest, like I am worried about Congress getting this wrong. I am worried about uh, international regulators getting this wrong and lawsuits. And I think it can have a massively chilling effect on new innovation. And so we've been trying to do a lot of outreach to kind of talk about the value of code, not only from a constitutional perspective, but also from, you know, a, a societal perspective that uh, people can benefit tremendously from having uh, financial privacy, from having access to tools that give them um, a lot more uh, control over their uh, transactions. So there's, there's a lot of uh, open questions that I think Congress has to still sort out. Um, and I think it can be honestly a little nerve wracking for people who are just kind of diving into the space. And then when they dig just a layer below the speech and find out actually it's it's much more complicated than that. And we still need to figure out how the courts are going to sort this out. Uh, I could see that would be maybe not exactly the message. you would yeah. necessarily want Yes, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. My, my hope, my obviously I, I try to keep this as journalistic as, as possible. But right. my hope with a show like this is people out in Monero land uh, get an understanding of of where this country is at, uh, United States, in terms of 
things we're talking about, you know, free speech and, and, uh, you know, protecting, uh, people's right to, to publish things and express themselves and feel confident that, you know, it seems like Monero, the cryptocurrency Monero, uh, would be protected by these things, given the policies behind these laws. So like the policies that, that, that are behind the concept of free speech, right. Is it's about, uh, you know, like, I, like we were touching upon before, you know, uh, or if you actually do you want to do you want to explain what are the policies behind free speech because that's what I want to get at I feel like they kind of align with what Monero itself try is trying to achieve in tech technology form which is kind of preserving freedom and liberty and allowing people to communicate freely uh and I obviously isn't that what the purpose of free speech laws are um so are they aligned or what are the policies behind the first amendment and things like you know uh, the fourth right. amendment. Like, what what are these policies that uh, um, at the end of the day these laws are supposed to be there for? And right. do you think they ultimately align with the mission of digital cash? Yeah. So I mean, I think for for this conversation, I can think of like, like three sort of First Amendment policies or principles that are at play. And so the first one is this idea about the First Amendment prohibiting prior restraints. And what that means is that the First Amendment generally prohibits the government from imposing some regulation or liability on a party who desires to speak and prohibits them from speaking before they have a chance to do it. Um, so this often comes up, I think most famously, people know about this in, in terms of like the Pentagon Papers case with the New York Times, where the government actually stopped, tried to stop um, the New York Times and the Washington Post from publishing um, you know, the papers that basically showed all the problems that led us into the Vietnam War. And, you know, so, so that's sort of one principle is that you don't get to the First Amendment protects, it allows us all to take the chance to express things. And generally speaking, except in sort of the most extreme circumstances, the government can't prohibit you from talking. Um, and the second is, uh, you know, after you've had that moment of talking, the government sort of there's a wide latitude in what we're able to say without being subject to either civil or criminal liability for saying those things. Um, and so we think about that in the context of uh, defamation where you know, there is sort of this policy that's recognized. We want to have these wide, robust debates in which people say caustic things, um, but you need sort of like a high legal standard to overcome them to actually prevail in court to say that someone defamed you, right? You have to show that it was said with malice. Um, and then, and, and so I think that's at play as well in sort of believing in having like a ro robust and wide ranging free discussion that's sort of important to our society because that's what enables self-governance and allows us to make informed decisions about how we proceed as a, as a nation, right? Uh, and I think the third value that's particularly apt in, in Monero is this idea of anonymity, right? So the First Amendment protects anonymity um, and it protects our ability to both um, speak anonymously as well as to associate anonymously, um, or at least to associate without sort of government knowledge. Um, and, and the protections there, I would say, are not as robust, right? Because what, what, uh, courts have recognized and sort of the right to anonymity is it's a qualified right. So you have a right to anonymity, but it can be overcome. So in cases like particularly in online, 
Um, if someone you know, has a username and is being anonymous, but then they defame someone, courts have developed this balancing test to determine whether or not someone can actually be unmasked. Um, and, and it goes to questions about like, what was the speech at issue and, and have they proven that this was in fact legally defamation and how sort of strong is the case? Um, but those are like, again, like robust protections that um, like EFF was sort of directly in the front lines. It's our lawyers were the ones helping to create this standard. Um, so I think all of those values are things that are reflected in, in Monero and this idea of enabling um, secure uh, transactions that are private or um, quasi-private or allow for um, private associations, um, at least free from government scrutiny in some ways. But I think the, the, the question that we don't have an answer to in, in the face of like, I can't tell you the case that says like, whether like that actual um, functioning of Monero is itself protected, even though it embodies those values. And so I think, you know, it would, it would really sort of depend on like the specifics, like there are easy questions, right? Like if a law was, was passed tomorrow and signed by the president that said, um, you can't publish Monero, you can't distribute the code for Monero. I think that's an easy question, like we've discussed about previously. But I think questions about like, is Monero and the sort of endpoints in which people um, transact, hold value, or maybe exchange value, are those subject to other sort of financial laws and regulations? Um, you know, I think those are open questions, but again, it's sort of like there, there are avenues in which we are trying to push for the First Amendment values to be at play. But I think it's like an open question and it's certainly not the case that a court has held that like the First Amendment would prohibit that type of regulation. I think it would, it would come down to sort of what that regulation looks like and, and sort of what are the expressive elements. Great. And so and that's a many year process. Like we would have to see some version of a regulation get introduced. Normally it takes several years to pass. I know EFF would be advocating very hard for the concerns around civil liberties and user rights. We're not the only people that would be engaged in a debate like that. Um, there's a lot of other people who would certainly weigh in on any regulation in the United States that would affect uh, you know, digital cash. Uh, that said, there's a lot of people who I think have vested interests in, uh, in regulation that might benefit their particular business model and they may have big voices. And then assuming it does get passed and there is some sort of challenge to it, uh, I mean, it's, how long does it take a lawsuit to get decided? Yeah. <laughs> how long before that it can be That can be a years long <laughs> process in and of itself. Right, so. Um, yeah, I mean, some, sometimes we're lucky to get sort of quick decisions, but I think right. more likely it would be years. Right, so. so I hear you and I my heart goes out to you that you wanna give complete confidence to your community. I would also love to give them that kind of confidence. I think they do. Yeah, I wouldn't say complete, I'm not, you know, obviously not complete confidence, but I, I like, I keep leaning towards this. Well, Monero just had a conference in Denver. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of that. Um, and there was a lot of talk, yeah, well. Right into that conference in Denver. And I, I unfortunately wasn't able to make it, I'm sorry. And there was there was there was a lot of talk that well is Denver a good place for a Monero conference is the United States a good place for a Monero conference, and my personal opinion is I mean I I don't know the the laws of every country I know I know the laws of this country pretty well 
Uh, and I, I think I have a pretty good understanding of what this country is supposed to be about and what, what America started as and like the purposes and the ideals behind it. And I just, you know, with ignoring everything else, I feel like the ideals that this country was built upon actually align pretty well with the ideals uh, that behind Monero, right? So this country was, uh, you know, started as a democracy, as an experiment, uh, you know, the idea of preserving people's individual liberty. Uh, and now as we transition into the digital age, uh, there, there needs to be new ways to pr protect individual liberty. Yeah. And the best way to do that, uh, the cypherpunks realize, is to do it through code and software. So I kind of see uh, the software, something like Monero, this open source system, kind of being the, the new constitution for the digital age uh, without really asking for permission. But it's this thing that you can opt into that preserves people's liberty in the digital age. I know that's kind of sounds a little far fetched, but that's kind of the way I'm looking at things. And I see. So that's why I see Monero, the ideals of Monero actually aligning quite well with the ideals of what I believe America is supposed to be. So that's why I'm very interested in in kind of understanding on a deeper level of what really where we're at in terms of uh, our constitution and what free speech is about and how it will then actually be applied to these things. So, yeah. I mean, I think as a policy matter, like EFF believes in like having technology that not just sort of carries carries forward our rights, but like strengthens them. And so, you know, we see the promise of like a digital cash and all the sort of both expressive and privacy um, features that are values that we agree are like, you know, built into our system. Uh, we see those as promising. And so, you know, as a policy matter, we we definitely like support them and and believe that like, yes, there should be like a digital equivalent of like cash, right? And the ability to use something that's digital in the same way that you would use cash for anonymous purposes, for expressive purposes and so on. I think, you know, what, what it comes down to is like, there's not a clean, neat answer for like what the law is and what like a court would say. I mean, we would strongly advocate for the values and the policy to be as such, but it doesn't mean necessarily that like, there's just not the law that sort of backs us up at this point. Right. One thing I would add to that is, I mean, you just named it like these are ideals that our country was founded on. People fought really hard for those ideals when our country was founded. And it turns out you have to fight hard for them today. And so I would say that if we want to see the future of American society continue to reflect those values, it's going to be hard won um, in a wide range of different uh, battlegrounds. But I think it is possible. And I you know, we're working every day for it. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job. Um, how about coins? So you guys helped out with the Coin Center paper that recently came out as well, uh, uh, basically about this topic of uh, electronic cash uh, and constitutional law. Um, and uh, I believe they were talking about the Bank Secrecy Act and whether or not, uh, you know, it would be unconstitutional, like we said, to basically uh, prevent somebody from developing something like Monero software, or I guess even developing something like a Monero wallet or uh, a decentralized exchange. And then, so they talked about the First Amendment, but they also talked about the Fourth Amendment. Do you guys, do you want to get into that a little bit or? 
were, were you guys were instrumental in that paper as well, right? Am I correct in? I provided uh, quite a bit of feedback on early versions of that paper. I also, I have to say, I am um, loving this conversation, and we hit my uh, we hit my deadline for when I've got to hang up. <laughs> oh no! So I want to just. Uh, I'm wondering if we should think about. Um, wrapping up. Not that I wouldn't love to continue. I just don't want the next person who's waiting to chat with me to be uh, feeling like I, I'm late for that meeting. Okay. Uh, however you want to do it. You want to just continue with that? You want me to just continue with Aaron or how do you, how do you guys want to do this? Unfortunately, it's on my laptop. So oh, I, okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Right. I okay. uh, thought about that before. No worries. But I, I would say just very quickly to answer your question, I mean, I think we we agree um, and, and maybe at a later date we could unpack sort of the, the Fourth Amendment questions, which I think are also sort of nuanced and, um, you know, sort of complicated. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that uh, generally speaking, like the values that the Coin Center's white paper talks about and sort of how the Fourth Amendment might restrict um, the government's ability to sort of know just as a matter of course about every transaction um is something that's like worth unpacking and, and thinking about yeah cool all right guys I, I mean yeah i have plenty more questions but i guess well uh my apologies for starting late that was my fault uh we had some computer issues um yeah if you guys want to pick it up again at some other date let me know awesome okay Thank you so much. We really, this was a fantastic conversation. I'd love to do it again sometime. Awesome. Thanks guys. Have a good Thank one. You. So long. Bye.